0: Good morning, friends. I am Perry, one of the pastors here at the Boulder campus. It's great to be together today. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 15 and 16 this morning. If you have your journal or have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. I will have some of the verses up on these screens, but not all of them. So it's helpful if you're able to follow along. Well, this past week, the Associated Press ran a story about last year's NCAA Women's Basketball Championship game between the LSU Tigers and the Iowa Hawkeyes. LSU won that game and so I wanna point out that the CU Women's Buffs also beat the LSU Tigers earlier this week in just a dominating performance. So yeah, give it up for them. But back to the article. So the article was about the championship game which was memorable for numerous reasons Unfortunately, one of those reasons was the officiating. turns out that the officiating wasn't quite up to par, at least for an Iowa Hawkeyes fan. If you're an LSU fan, you have no problem with it. But if you were a Hawkeye, you would want a congressional investigation. Well, the NCAA didn't do that, but they did launch their own investigation. And what they found confirmed that indeed, the officiating was not up to standard. Lynn Holzman is the vice president for the NCAA Women's Basketball Division, and she was quoted in this article of saying that we typically have a performance that I think is around 91% historically in terms of the, the standard of officiating and its accuracy. But in that game, the percentage of correct calls was below that, around 88%, 88%. 91, what's the difference, right? But the point is that fouls were called that should not have been called. Fouls were missed that should have been called. There was one call in particular, a technical foul that was assessed to Iowa's star player that was a pivotal decision and may have even affected the outcome of the game. In review now, the NCAA has actually gone back and changed the rules for this year so that a foul like that can no longer be called in a moment like that. Why are we talking about this? Don't we know what it's like to live in a world where human beings make bad judgments? Don't we know what that's like? Now, in the article, Holzman talks about all of the training that's going to go into helping these officials get back up to that gold standard of 91% for these error-prone, black and white striped shirt-wearing, whistle-blowing human beings who are prone to making mistakes just like the rest of us. But the fact is we know what it's like to live in a world where these kinds of things happen. It's one thing when it happens in a championship game or any game, but it's another thing when it happens in life in in an area like politics where a politician advances some kind of legislation that ends up hurting more than it helps. When the criminal justice system by accident ends up convicting somebody who's innocent or releasing somebody who's guilty. Or when the CEO of a company makes a bad judgment call that ends up taking the company into bankruptcy. We know what it's like to live in a world where human beings make bad judgment calls. So isn't it a relief as we sit here this morning and we can say with confidence that God's judgments are always right. The judgments of God are always right. There's no investigation needed to go back and to say, God, why did you get that one wrong? There's no rules change, rule changes that are required because God never makes a mistake in his judgments. We can agree to that. And I would imagine many of us in this room this morning do agree that the judgments of God are always right. But our confidence in that claim may be questioned a bit in our passage this morning. Let's pick it up. Chapter 15, starting in verse one. It goes this way. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them, the wrath of God is finished. How are you doing with the wrath of God? How does that sit with you? Does it make you uncomfortable? I think it makes me uncomfortable at times. Does the wrath of God make us want to squirm a little bit, maybe even try to explain our way out of it or embarrass us? Now we all may know people who take the wrath of God as their favorite doctrine about God and would love to just berate people with it and to scare them more than to save them. But I don't think that's probably where we are this morning. Instead, the, the wrath of God is something that makes us uncomfortable. It's even disorienting. And we would rather avoid it but because it's in our passage so prominently today, we cannot ignore it. So the question then becomes if God experiences wrath, then how can we say that his judgments are always right? Don't we know by experience that wrath clouds our judgment? Don't we know from experience that wrath gets in the way of rationality? So, how do we deal with this issue of God's wrath? just to step back from that question for a moment and let's look at the big picture of where we are in the book of revelation we've been in chapters 15 and 16 or that's where we're going to be today but we find ourselves past the midway point of the book of revelations 22 chapters so far what we've seen or we've seen these three sets of seven judgments that are the major backbone or structure of the book we've seen the seven seals We've seen the seven trumpets. And this morning we read about this great and amazing sign that John saw of seven angels with seven plagues. But these are different than what comes before because of these plagues, it's said specifically that these are the last for with them the wrath of God is finished. The wrath of God is finished, which just conjures up in our minds the fact that this is something that's limited That this isn't something indefinite that has no ending, but that God's wrath is in some way about to culminate. So what do we do with that wrath? Well, we can see here that, first of all, we have a picture throughout Revelation of a God who is engaged in his creation, It's not a God who's indifferent, who's unconcerned, or who's unaware of what's happening. But this is a God who knows what's happening in his creation, who cares deeply about what's unfolding. This is a God who is active and involved. But a second thing we can say about that is that because this is the last set of judgments, that these are finished, that the wrath of God is about to be finished, that there's a culmination to it. That God's wrath is not just open-ended and it will end whenever it runs out, whenever it happens to run out, but that God has an objective in his mind for the completion of his wrath. It suggests that there will be a point in time when God's wrath will be no more. So what is the purpose of God's wrath? Well, to see that, we need to look at verse two. Verse two John says, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with the harps of God in their hands. Where in Revelation have we already seen a sea of glass? It was back in the throne room. In chapter 4, there was a sea of glass like crystal that was around God's throne, And then in front of that, there was described seven blazing torches, which are the seven spirits of God, which is possibly a reference to God's spirit, the Holy Spirit being there present. Here, what John is seeing is this sea of glass mingled with fire. We are meant to be reminded of the heavenly throne room when we read this. That that's where these people are standing, that they are standing by the heavenly throne room. But then we think as well, where else have we seen in scripture people standing by the sea? Book of Exodus, of course. In the book of Exodus, we also see that God's people have been delivered through the sea and they're now standing on the dry land. They've gone through the waters that have transformed them from being slaves on one side to being free on the next. It's a picture of God delivering his people So God's purpose in judgment is to bring about this deliverance. The answer to the question about what would bring about this end of God's wrath, the the completion of these judgments, the answer is God's deliverance will do it. God's deliverance will bring it about. So those who had conquered are the ones who are standing there. And in the terms of revelation, conquering is what the objective of the Christian life is all about. We might also just say it as, as being victorious, of overcoming. That's what the whole point of the Christian life is. But those words conjure up ideas in our minds of like outsmarting, outmuscling, or outmaneuvering. But that's not what it means in Revelation. And Revelation to conquer is totally different. We saw it a couple chapters ago in chapter 12, verse 11. That's the chapter where we were introduced to the dragon who represents Satan, the devil the adversary of God. But there it talks about those who had overcome the power of evil. And it said that they had done so by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and because they loved not their lives even unto death. We overcome by the blood of the lamb. We overcome by the accomplished, completed work of Jesus Christ. We overcome by... The explanation through our words and our actions and our attitudes of what God has done for us, we overcome by being people who don't love our lives so much that we would try to preserve them at the cost of faithfulness to God. In the words of Jim Elliott, a 20th century martyr, it's no fool to to give what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. That's the perspective of an overcomer. So here we see that these people are standing there by the sea. They've conquered the beast, the image, the number of his name. But we're confused by this because this is the completion, the deliverance of God, but it's in chapter 15. There's 22 chapters in Revelation. But this reads like we should be at the last chapter, the last words of the book. But when we look at these two chapters this morning, it's like we're reading the story of the Exodus in reverse because we see God's deliverance here early on and then we're going to read about the judgments of God that bring it about. It's like we're reading it backwards to see God's redemption and then the judgments that follow with that. But to go back to the opening question or the opening idea of why God's judgments are always right, we can see from just these first couple of verses that they're always right because they're motivated by God's purposes. They are motivated by God's purposes. Does motivation matter when it comes to judgment and wrath? Does it matter why we might be stirred up to wrath? I think one of the primary reasons we have an objection to God's wrath at times is because we know human wrath. What sets off a person in wrath? Could be you're just having a bad day you didn't get enough sleep the night before. Something happened in your day and it completely disrupted the agenda that you had set for it. You perceive a, a slight, an offense from another person that may or may not even be true or real. People can be set off into wrath for the craziest, slightest kinds of reasons. Our motivations can be, can be just downright ridiculous at times. But it's not so with God. In the words of British pastor and author John Stott, he makes a comparison like this, and he says that that God's anger is never unpredictable, but it's always predictable because it is provoked by evil and evil alone. In short, God's anger is poles apart from ours. What provokes our anger, like injured vanity, never, never produces God's. But what provokes his anger, evil, Seldom provokes ours. God's motivations are evil. And in in the language of Revelation, just to orient us to where evil shows up, it's in the dragon, it's in the beast from the sea, it's in the beast from the land. It's in those who have have taken the mark of the beast, showing their ultimate loyalty and allegiance and devotion to the forces of evil. Those who are set against the purposes of God. They are the ones who God shows wrath toward. They are the ones who God's judgment is for. They are the ones who experience this and that is the motivation behind God's purpose. That he would demonstrate this wrath to have victory that would deliver his people through that so that they might be among the conquerors standing here on the edge of the sea experiencing the deliverance and the victory of God. Those who oppose God's purposes experiences wrath, but those who take up God's purposes, they worship. Let's read about that now in verse three. Imagery from the book of Exodus here. If we were to go back to Exodus chapter 14, we would read about the deliverance of God's people through the Red Sea. Then, one chapter after that, in Exodus 15, we would read about the Song of Moses. The Song of Moses is the celebration of all of the Israelites for God's saving acts that He has just accomplished. So, we're following that same pattern here where we see them, the people of God, standing by the edge of the waters proclaiming this song of Moses here again. And what do they say? Well, great and amazing are his deeds. Great and amazing were the first words that were used to describe the sign up in verse one of chapter 15. And just and true are your ways. Just just has to do with the uprightness and the fairness of God. The truthfulness of all of his ways is evident in his actions. He's called the Lord God Almighty. He's called the King of the Nations, which just points to his incomparable sovereignty and authority over all things. And then, this question in verse four is so critical for all of us as we think about who will not fear and glorify the name of God. To fear means to have a deep reverence for God. We all fear something in this sense. We might fear the approval of other people. We might work our lives to build up a, a set of accomplishments and achievements that would impress other people so that they would think well of us. In that sense, we might, we might be fearing people more than we're fearing God. We might build up a, a wild financial portfolio that allows us great independence, great security in life from, from one standpoint. But in that case, we might be actually fearing this independence and security more than we're fearing the Lord. But fearing the Lord is what people do when they have been delivered by him. They go on and say, for you alone are holy. The holiness of God points to the fact that God is set apart from all other creatures and beings. God is the creator and the sustainer of all things who who sustains our universe just by the power of his will points to the fact that God himself is entirely uncreated himself, non-contingent. He doesn't depend on anyone else for his existence, but it points to his moral perfection as well. That this is a God who has not a hint of envy, not a hint of deceit, not a hint of any impurity inside of him. And God is holy always. His holiness does not wax and wane, but God is always holy, including in his wrath. If we're going to believe in a God whose judgments are always right, we have to believe in a God who is holy. That's the connection between God's holiness and between God's judgments. And we see that here, all of the nations recognize this holiness of God. All of the nations can recognize the just and true ways that he has displayed. It crosses every cultural barrier and boundary that might exist between cultures and nations. But everyone can detect and identify God's just and righteous ways when they see them. This is what it looks like To worship the God who has delivered us. The judgments of God are always right. In part because they're motivated by God's purposes, but also they're expressions of God's character. This is who God is. It is impossible for God to do something that would violate his nature. It's impossible for God to do something that would contradict his character. God always acts in a way that is consistent with who he is in the core of his very being, which is part of the issue we might have with his wrath. Because if, if God is a God who experiences wrath, then that must also be an expression of who he is in his being. But then how do we reconcile a God of wrath with a God of love? Becky Pippert is an author who wrote a book called Hope Has Its Reasons. And in there she writes, Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion but it's his settled opposition to the cancer which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. I mean think about it. if you're a parent and you have a child and that child is getting caught up in an online relationship with a stranger who's Presenting as one thing, but in reality as something different. Who's causing your child to believe things that are not true and to do things that should not be done? Don't you know what it's like to both at the same time have your heart break and experience a little bit of wrath? If you're a spouse married to, if you're a a husband or a wife married together and you have somebody who's getting between you and your spouse, don't you know what it's like to have your heart break and experience a little bit of wrath? God's wrath and God's love are not a contradiction. In fact, if you want a God who's free of wrath, you need to go find a God who's free of love. The rest of our chapter is something that I'm just gonna summarize here, but in the rest of chapter 15, what we see is the distribution of these golden bowls of wrath, seven golden bowls that are distributed to seven angels. Now what's interesting about the language that's used here for seven golden bowls of wrath is that we saw golden bowls earlier in the book of Revelation as well, but there they were said to be full of incense that represented the prayers of the saints. I don't think it's by accident that the same instruments of worship are being referenced for the prayers of the saints and for the wrath of God. I think what's being shown to us here is that the wrath of God is his response to the prayers of the saints. The prayers of the saints who are crying out for mercy, who are crying out for God's justice, who are calling out for God to complete his work so that his kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. They want God's justice and God here is answering their cries here as we see at the end of chapter 15 that these bowls of wrath are being distributed to the angels. Chapter 16 is where we we enter in then to this whole description of God's final set of judgments where it says, then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bulls of the wrath of God. Okay, again, big picture thing. If we compare the the bulls that we're reading about here in chapter 16 with what we've seen before with the seals and the trumpets, we can see that the seals, they impacted a quarter of the earth's population. The trumpets were said to impact a third, so there's an escalation. But here with the bulls, they affect all of the earth. It's an unlimited impact of God's judgment just meant to describe this intensification. And of course, that leaves us with the question of, is this referring to the same set of judgments at the same time? Or is this a linear progression throughout history? Those are just questions where we find that people interpret it differently. But the point is that these plagues are meant to remind us of the plagues of long ago out of the book of Exodus. What God did there on a smaller scale to deliver his people he is doing now on a global scale once and for all. This is the God whose judgments bring about that kind of total comprehensive deliverance. So we read about the first bowl being poured out, the second bowl being poured out by these angels. And with the third, it says that he poured his his bowl out into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. John says, And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. This is hard to read. In verse 7. Says, I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. This sounds vindictive. Sounds like we're celebrating revenge here. But first, about the altar. If we were to look back into chapter 5 at the fifth seal, when the fifth seal was opened, the altar was exposed, and John hears these voices. There are martyrs underneath the altar crying out for God's justice to be served. And here we see the altar now celebrating, joining in with God's final judgment that he's issuing now. Just and true are your judgments, O Lord. But how are we to hear this? How are we to respond to such wrath of God being poured out in these judgments? I've been helped in this area by other people who have different perspectives on life and the world than I do. I can say that from my vantage point, I've had a very comfortable life. I've had an affluent life. I've had a life that's free of great injustice, great tragedy. And I can can say that for me, one of the biggest obstacles I have with being able to wrap my mind around who God is is this very issue of the wrath of God. But I've been reminded by people who have different perspectives from around the world, who have suffered great tragedy, who have suffered with great injustice, who know what it's like to live in a world of violence and affliction at the hands of perpetrators against them, who know what it's like to live in a world where there seems to be no justice. I've heard that their problem is not that God might bring his wrath and his judgment. Their problem is that God might be forgiving and merciful towards them. We should just remember that our initial response to this may not be as objective as we think it is, but it might be more cultural and more based on our own experience of life at an individual level. But here we see that God's judgments are being poured out and they're being celebrated by those who have suffered greatly as they have followed the slaughtered lamb, but still we want to know, God, in the midst of all of these great judgments, where is your mercy? What about those who might repent? Well, if we read about the fourth angel and the fourth bull, the response of the people there is said to be that they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. If we read about the fifth Angel In the fifth bowl being poured out, it says that the people responded by cursing the God of heaven. They did not repent of their deeds. If we skip ahead to the seventh bowl and the seventh angel, it says at the end of that, the very last verse in our chapter, that they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. What we see here is a hardening of hearts that are already resistant towards God. Let's be very, very, very clear about what we do and do not see here. This is not a portrayal of a wrathful God against human beings who are seeking mercy. This is not the portrayal of people who are trying to live up to God's standards but are just having a hard time making it happen. This is not the portrayal of people who are running to God, seeking God's mercy, but instead are just catching him at a bad moment or on a bad day. But instead, these are people who are persistent in their rebellion against him. We might imagine that people who are experiencing such turmoil and catastrophe that they might at least pretend to repent in order to escape it. But instead what we see is a group of people who would rather experience the wrath of God than participate in the worship of God. That is the image that's being portrayed here. And just the severity of the language and description here just intensifies and heightens the sense of how hard their hearts are towards the God who is bringing judgment and delivering judgment people so when we think about the judgments of God we see that they are motivated they're motivated by his purposes that they are expressions of his character which is always holy and we see as well that they provide salvation for God's people Remember, this is like Exodus in reverse. It's these judgments that bring about the scene that we read about first in Exodus chapter 15 where they're they're standing by the glassy sea delivered through God's judgment. See, that's just it. It is the judgment of God that brings deliverance. Isn't that the essence of our faith? That it's, God's judgment that ends up bringing us salvation. The judgments of God are always right. And the primary display of God's judgment and the righteousness of it is the cross. It's in the cross that we see the wrath of God poured out. It's in the cross that we see the judgment of God taking place. And it's in the cross that we see his mercy. It's the cross where we see his love. It's the cross where we see his forgiveness. And it's the cross where we see his ultimate and final deliverance. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says this, chapter 5 rather, he says this. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? We escape God's wrath through the instrument of his judgment. The cross is our way to stand among those who have conquered. It's by the blood of the lamb the cross is the place that we find forgiveness, we find deliverance, we find God's justification taking place. Paul also said to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We're here this morning, and you're somebody who has already trusted Christ, somebody who already is saved by the blood of the Lamb, My hope is that maybe a message like this, a passage like this out of God's word can help us just come to terms with God's wrath in a little better way to understand how his wrath fits into the big picture of his holiness. But for anyone here who has not yet experienced that salvation, that deliverance of God through Christ, my hope is that this would be the day where you can stand among those by the shore who have been delivered and redeemed by the blood of that lamb. We can trust in God's good judgments because they are always right. So we can trust this God with all of our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a text like this as hard as it is. Lord, thank you for the reminder of who you are, that you are a God of justice, that you are a God who will not let injustice go on indefinitely, but you are setting all things right. Lord, I pray that that would be a comfort to us. And I pray that that would be a motivation to us, Lord, to know that now is the time Now is the time for us to to be people who live by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony, Lord, that, that we would not love our lives on this earth so much that we would be unfaithful to you, but that we would know that your judgment is coming and through that, our complete experience of redemption is coming with it. But God, I pray that we would be faithful in the meantime. God, give us the strength to be able to live with the hope that your judgments are always right so that we don't have to fear. We don't have to wonder whether justice will one day be served, but we can actually resign ourselves to rest in the judgment that you will bring perfectly and completely one day. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who has not yet experienced your deliverance. Father, I just pray that you would stir hearts, open minds. Lord, we we pray that your gospel would be proclaimed through our lives. And we thank you for our time together this morning as we worship. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen.